I spent so many years hating the very parts of myself that others were trying to love. And it's just silly and sad and such a waste of time. Um, but that's what I knew how to do. I, I really wanted to find a way to tease apart the two strands of my personality, the nature and the nurture. And I was obsessed with the idea of who was I before this happened? Who, who, who might I have been? I could have been somebody. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Britt East. He's an author and a speaker whose new book is A Gay Man's Guide to Life. So I was curious, what was the reason you decided to write this guide? Yeah, I mean, we're such a tiny minority, uh, such, you know, um, such a small social group that we're not always top of mind. And we have a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, finding our place in this, uh, this pluralistic society that we live in, at least in the U.S., no, there has never been a social movement like we've seen in the in the past few decades for, for the gay rights movement. In recorded human history, there's really never been anything like it, which is wonderful. But there's all sorts of unintended consequences as part of that as well. And, you know, I think I think what we all can do is recognize that we are each of us complex mixtures of privilege and adversity and get curious, get empathetic so we can get together and lift each other up. You know, when you when you run into people who are in these younger generations and who have been growing up gay, do you find that they have a sense of the difference in your story? You know, not about the abuse per se, of course, which which I do want to talk about in a minute, but a different a difference in your experience because of the era that you grew up in from theirs? Do they appreciate that? I think it varies widely. Um, you know, the, the really encouraging, wonderful thing about young people today is they are so socially engaged and such a powerful movement. And we're seeing that in real time. And young people are leading the way in, in so many different avenues when it comes to social change. Yeah. And there's certainly also... You know, you can kind of measure the trauma of a gay life by determining when that person came of age. You know, 10 years in a gay life, you know, if I was born 10 years before somebody else, that is an order of magnitude level of trauma that I, in all likelihood, such that you can quantify these things, um, experienced. Uh, you know, I, my, my husband is 10 years older than me, and what he experienced was much worse than what I experienced. And then when I talk to young people, you know, they often, if, if you did not grow up in the shadow of AIDS, it's hard to paint the picture when you equate mm -hmm. sex with death and how that, um, 
how that warps and distorts the contours of your life, just that one aspect. And, you know, we're not even talking about the homophobia piece of it, but just the just the specter of the height of deaths due to the AIDS epidemic. Sure. So it's it's challenging to convey it. But that's really the cool thing about literature and movies and art and and the kinds of books that I write is you can hopefully start to paint that story. But it's it's tough. And, and you know, they have their own challenges that they're living with. Um, so it's incumbent upon all of us as a gay men of a certain age to stand tall and, and use our sharp elbows to make our way in the world and claim our place so that, Mm -hmm. so that we, you know, the young people can't learn from us if we don't speak. And so we Mm -hmm. have to, we have to grab the mic and we have to take it, you know, straight society is not going to give it to us. We have to take it and and sing our songs and 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 then you know grab the attention of all those who would listen when you were growing up and um you know i i know that you you've mentioned abuse and were you aware first that you were gay or that you were suffering abuse gay mm-hmm. um the i i there's all sorts of different coming out stories and the coming out metaphor is really interesting because we usually consolidate it into a single experience or narrative when really it's a daily occurrence. I still come out almost every day. And interesting. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it can be something as um, inadvertent as somebody at the grocery store, assuming I'm straight or asking about my wife when they see my wedding mm-hmm. ring. Um, it can be a coworker just presuming without thinking, not even with ill intent, um, just because we are such a tiny minority that I'm married to a woman or that um, that I'm straight for whatever reason. And then I, in that moment, I have to survey the landscape and think to myself about the the risk analysis. Is it safe for me physically, economically, spiritually, for me to share and disclose this part of my life? What am I willing to risk to share it? And what am I willing to risk to not share it? Because there's a cost at closeting myself. Just like coming out, it can be a daily occurrence. Closeting can also be a daily occurrence. Mm. The greatest gift that I have is myself. And as I'm able to share that authentically with the world, that is my song, that is my medicine. And so I learned, I happen to have known I was gay from a very early age. Um, I certainly experienced lots of denial around it, but um, I talk to guys from all over the world who have very different stories um, and did not realize until much later in life. But I knew from a very early age, it, it was not, nobody leaves a card on your pillow and says, hey, you're being abused. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. something you have to connect those dots with the help of, generally speaking, paid professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what it took for me to understand um, the narrative of my childhood, because there's so much social pressure and denial and fear around um, cutting yourself off from your biological family or framing that experience in a way that was less than something you might post on Instagram. And, sure. And so it takes a lot of guts and time to do that. So it's not something that I think most 
most kids come to. I think that's something that happens for most of us later in life. So are you saying that uh, when you were growing up in your mind, the abuse wasn't overt or that it didn't have a name that you understood or that you didn't realize that the way you were growing up was so different from the way it should be? Mainly, I just knew that I was incredibly sad and afraid and did not fit in. That, that, no, that every single part of me was wrong. That I did not fit into the world, body, mind, or spirit. There was no place for me. Um, you know, I grew up in a world without wisdom and a world without hope. And so I was, I was mired in the symptoms. I was stuck in the pain as a child. That was what I was experiencing. Did you have anyone in your family who who provided any comfort or did, I don't know if you have siblings or not, was there anyone in your family that you could turn to? I do not have any siblings and there was nobody in my family I could turn to because they were all in on it. They, they were all working in their own system. It was one big system of intergenerational trauma. Um, and so they were all um, abusing each other and themselves and me. And it was just all one big stew. And so there was really no place to turn. There, were no, there was no refuge. There was not one teacher, there was not one adult, there was not one coach. I was I had a profound sense that I was completely in it alone. And and let me qualify by that by saying at least that I could see even in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah, maybe people were reaching to help me and I was unable to experience that. But but in my recollection, it was really just me against the world. And so I learned to live in a relentless fury and to be a fighter and to, to beat the world down. Cause I, I had this sense that the only, the only thing I would ever be, all that I would ever have in this world would be through my two hands. Well, that sounds like something you had to learn. Yes, absolutely. I had to learn over time and it's, it's a shame, you know, no, no child should have to learn to do that. And it's, and it's hard as an adult to learn how to set down your to set down your sword and take off your armor. Right. I always, I think about this a lot that the, the tools or weapons that we acquire growing up to protect ourselves are often the ones we have to dismantle to have a happy life later. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's so unfair. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Cause you had one set of rules to survive by, but that's not actually going to serve you now if you want to grow. And had I been straight, maybe I could have relied on other members of society to help me. But part of the insidiousness of homophobia is that I grew up behind a mask because I was so afraid of being killed for who I was, literally killed mm -hmm. for who I was, that I that myself never formed. And so that any modes of protection or help that might have reached for me had no chance of landing because I was like a ghost moving through the world. Right. So I think it's, it's really important to emphasize this because I'm trying to, you know, I have to take myself back. I grew up in the same era as you did. And so I have to take myself back to really not only remember that you were, you're a child at this time, that I was a child, but that you're, you're being abused and that you're also aware that you're gay. And that is so different from what that is now. And you're telling me that 
you didn't really have a teacher who seemed to that that you recognized was offering you any kind of comfort or a lifeline. So can you can you tell me what it was like for you to wake up every day and have to move through the world? Sure. You're you're basically moving from one crisis to the next. You're careening from crisis to crisis. And it's, um, okay, what problem do I have to solve today just to make it through the day? Um, How can I hide from my family? Um, How can I make it through school so nobody sees me Mm -hmm. when I so desperately want to be seen? So you live in this paradox, this state of double, you know, this constant state of double binds. I so desperately want to be seen, but don't look at me. Don't really know who I am, but I really want to be loved. There's no way to solve that equation. So um, I was very athletic and I was um, artistic. I was a classical musician. Um, I was very, um, I was the class clown in a lot of ways, but I was also extremely oppositional and defiant and basically a brat. (laughs) Um, and uh, almost like a feral cat, you know, I was like, or a cat that you, when you come over to somebody's house and the cat's under the bed, you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, that's kind of how I was. And so I really, I had no friends and I was no friend. And Mm -hmm. there were people that longed to love me as, as friends, my peers and, you know, other kids growing up, but there was nothing for them to cling to because there was no there there. There was just a person hadn't formed. You know, all just about all gay kids experience this delayed adolescence because we miss the normal rites of passage. You know, when other straight kids are dipping their toe and, you know, and socializing with um, learning how to date the opposite sex and all that kind of stuff and getting all sorts of um, social praise for having their first mm. crushes and having their first kiss. Gay kids are often experiencing terror or confusion or lying. And, and that incongruence has a profound effect on the developing personality. And so many of us end up experiencing a delayed adolescence. And so mm-hmm. often have behavior traits in our 20s and 30s that, that teenage straight kids might have and even younger. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know how you got out. When did you get break out of that particular construct? When was your first moment of relaxing or taking a deep breath? How old were you? Um, It was a long time. Uh, So I, I was able to go to college and I went to college out of state, which helped tremendously. But it also precipitated a suicide attempt because um, I was in such denial about the trauma that I was experiencing. So when that trauma was removed and I had no foundation or skills for any interrelatedness um, to build any sort of social structures, I was just kind of lost. Are you saying that because you've been so used to defending yourself and um, kind of fortifying yourself that when you had like a moment not needing to do that, you didn't have any way of being? I had no identity. Exactly. And so I found myself in the care of the university mental health system. 
And that started my journey with talk therapy. It's pretty rudimentary, um, but at least it was something. And then fast forward, you know, five, six years, I had my first loving relationship with a man. And because I had no sense of self, I was completely codependent. And Mm -hmm. I invested way too much of myself. You know, codependency is any sort of excessive um, uh, longing we put on another person. And, right. and I had no sense of self. So he was my everything. And he had, he was literally a teacher in life in so many ways. It's interesting, because I, I have to I was thinking about when you were talking about your life growing up, and how compartmentalized everything must have been in a way, how I would imagine you couldn't fully integrate who you were, of course. And so then when you were in college for the first time in a way, you had this absence of who you were, but then, and a sort of a dissociation, right? But then it sounds like when you were with this first relationship, it, it sounds like it would be so difficult for someone who'd been compartmentalized and dissociative to, to not be, how are you supposed to at all protect yourself or understand what the boundaries are? How are you supposed to understand how to regulate yourself? You're exactly right. And when you throw on top of that, the fact that this was a, a gay relationship in the, in the 1990s, um, there were no support structures in place to help you. Mm-hmm. Even though we were both out to our parents, back then, this sort of a relationship was not celebrated. Even if your parents were loving and ex- what you prayed for was tolerance, the kind of milk, right. the kind of milk toast of tolerance, like okay, I guess <laughs> I guess we won't kill you. I guess we won't. I guess we won't. You know, stop the funding and stuff. And and of course, I'm being kind of provocative there, but it's um, you know, it wasn't celebrated, and there were no tools put in place. And then in, in our peer group, we were monogamous. In our peer group, that was just unheard of. Um, you know, there was uh, there was a lot of promiscuity um, in our peer group um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, um, so, you know, we felt like an Island and what I did not know at the time is I had lured him and myself to this Island, which I created in my childhood, this Island of isolation of us against the world and kind of stranded us there. Um, and I was so codependent that I just invested all of my world in him. And and of course he had no way or desire or ability to live up to all these expectations. Mm-hmm. And that was your very first long relationship, right? That was my very first, I would call it real relationship. Before then, I had relationships with other guys that were profoundly unhealthy um, and abusive. And mm. um, But this was my first where it's like, okay, this feels like normal. And I remember so clearly thinking that like, oh my gosh, somebody like me gets to have a slice of normal. Because back then that was as big as I could dream was just mm-hmm. to maybe have a little vanilla and <laughs> a little bit of normalcy. And, um, uh, you know, I had no clue how profoundly unprepared I was. Otherwise, I would not have gotten in the relationship and I would have focused on my own mental and emotional health instead. So what happened after that relationship? Did you take some time off uh, or did you jump into another one? Um, 
Uh, I jumped into another one, but before we get there, um, I need to tell you, because there's a big component of it, is things were kind of humming along, and then all of a sudden he was arrested for having sex with a minor. And so I had invested my whole life in this relationship and never had heard of anything like what he was disclosing, which was a, which was a sex addiction. And at that time, sex addiction was really not in the news. This was something that had not been around a long time. Right. It's really important. It's really important that, that where we are in time, yeah. because so many things that we do talk about now, we never talked about back then. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there were, I think there was literally two books on the market to address mm -hmm. this. And there were, thank God, there were 12-step um, programs to address it. And so at the time, I made the decision to stay with them. And um, it was not through any altruism or forgiveness. I'm real clear on that. It was out of desperation and, and abject terror because I had not constructed my own life. And so I really had no opportunity and no choice. I was a parasite in a certain, through a certain lens of looking at it, as, as, as harsh as that may sound. And so I stayed with him and thank God he, this experience was so devastating for him that he got into a 12-step program and that led me to, um, a 12-step program for codependency. It's called Codependence of Sex Addicts Anonymous. And that's when mm -hmm. I first learned to get real. That for the very first time in my life, I took down the mask and I started to get real. That's where I found my voice. That's where I began this two-decade journey on personal growth and development. And our relationship eventually ended. We were together for seven years. Our relationship mm -hmm. ended for different reasons. And we're still friends to this day. Um, through mm, the miracle wow. of recovery, we're still close and he's married and I'm married and our husbands are friends. And um, Oh, wow. So he, he got better too. Yeah, got better sounds like a finish line. And that's my only apprehension. <laughs> he's a great guy and I'm a great guy and we're just trying our best in this world. And, you know, um, I guess what I mean is when I think about um, when I think about abusing minors, I guess I would hope that that part has stopped. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> the 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 thing is, there are no guarantees in this life, and not and I, I have no idea what he's up to on that level. Good God, I hope that uh, you know there has been there have been no other incidents that I know of, and and I hope for his sake and everyone else's sake that that he has experienced some release and recovery around that. I know I sure have on my issues, which it's so salacious to say what he did. And here I am like, oh, I was a little codependent. No, what I did was really horrible. The codependence that I manifested was really actually an addiction that was soul killing. It was harmful to him and it was harmful to me. So I, I don't want to minimize what I did in, in my part of the story in any way, shape or form. And through a lot of intensive therapy and recovery and a lot of different modalities, from nonviolent communication to the Hoffman process to Buddhism and meditation and yoga and 12 steps. Um, it's been a journey, but I am here and thriving like I never could have dreamed. Mm. You know, it's, it's, I was writing with a listener today. Um, we were going back and forth a little bit about vulnerability and about facing the parts of ourselves that are so hard to dismantle. And she mentioned that she was just at the beginning of the journey. I had posted something on my Instagram page for the podcast and she mentioned she was at the beginning of her journey and she was sort of afraid. And I told her that 
it was really hard work, but that it was worth it and that it really was worth it you know, to dig in and to see where we need to grow and what, what part we've played in our journey. And I feel like, especially if someone has been abused in their childhood, it's, it's such a hard line to walk because there is a reason why we are the way we are. And yet we are charged as adults, if we want to have a life that's fulfilling or healthy to get it better, it's kind of what we were talking about before. And so as you went through this process of growth and working on yourself, which sounds like you, you tried so many different avenues and modalities, how did you balance the, the compassion for who you were and who you had been with where you needed to go? I spent so many years hating the very parts of myself that others were trying to love. And it's just silly and sad and such a waste of time. Um, but that's what I knew how to do. I, I really wanted to find a way to tease apart the two strands of my personality, the nature and the nurture. And I was obsessed with the idea of who was I before this happened? Who, who, who might I have been? I could have been somebody. Who might I have been? And finally, I've come to learn that that is a bridge to nowhere. That, you know, the, the past is the living present, but it cannot be unwritten. And I am the inextricable combination of what I experienced and who I was before, the nature and the nurture. It cannot be teased apart. I'm all of it together. That's right. Yeah. And your book, it seems like your book is sort of a... I feel like from the little I know about you so far, that it's a beacon, that you want it to be a beacon. Do you see yourself as sort of the older brother when you, when you were writing it? What, what was the, the feeling you had about the type of voice and, and vibe that your book was going to be? Was it like an uncle or an older brother or a really good friend? Who, who do you see yourself as to gay men coming up now? Uh, this I think maybe the stern uncle. I mean, <laughs> I, I um, that's I, I'm laughing because um, I don't hear you as stern, oh, but um, maybe you see yourself that way. Yeah, yeah. the The book is very pointed and very straightforward. There's really nothing new agey about it, and it's um, it's really. It's a lot of practical and pragmatic advice and wisdom on every facet of life, from career planning to financial planning to um, mind, body, and spirit, um, and to navigating these waters as a gay man. So it's written through the lens of a gay man, but it's really for anybody. Mm -hmm. So the, the tone of voice that I use is 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 very forthright and pointed and direct and and I, I spent so much of my life listening to the lies of straight society the lies that we all tell each other that we tell ourselves mm -hmm. tell ourselves just to help us sleep at night and i'm determined mm -hmm. to not participate in that and so the so the book is raw and real um it pulls no punches um especially not at the gay community because we are our, our communities imprisoned by our, our own homophobia, 
by our own racism and misogyny. And we have to clean, that's enslaving us. We have to clean our slates first so that we can create a life worth living. But unless we're pointed and direct about it, it's too easy to just excuse our um, unintended behavior, our inadvertent um, character defects, and to wash them away and pretend like they never have. So I, I, the book is very stern and very mm. direct and straightforward. Um, here's what you need to do. Here's why you need to do it. Here's all the impacts that you may not have been aware of around the bigotry that you've been facing. Here, here's how they've adversely impacted your life. You know, so it's it's um, it's the wisdom I wish I would have had growing up. Right. Could you talk a little bit about the the I guess would you call it internalized uh, opposition to being gay? Like you're talking about that there's prejudice and and bigotry within the gay community. Um, I mean, you said it much more articulately than I just did, but I'm not as aware of that. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? I love talking about this because it goes unspoken most of the time. So many people want to give gay men a free pass because we're a marginalized community, because we do live with adversity in this straight society. But the truth is many of us have weaponized our own woundedness. Mm -hmm. The truth is that if there were a way to quantify this stuff, I suspect gay men might be the most racist of any, of any um, segment of the population. And I have all sorts wow. of theories about why. And I put those in the book so that we can face them head on. But at a high level, things like um, I, I think that a lot of cisgendered gay men in particular, white gay men in particular, think they're so close to the mountaintop. Hmm. Uh, um, and they, they want to get the ultimate approval, which is that that silent nod from a, a straight cisgendered man, white man. Hmm. And we will we will step on whoever we can to get that. Part of it is also sheer terror that if we don't cozy up to the straight white man, cisgendered man, then we will be exposed and we will be unable to eke out a living or we will be killed or whatever our hmm. self-limiting belief might be. And so we weaponize our woundedness. And a lot of this is subconscious. And of course, it's validated and magnified by our racist society. So a lot of it, our, you know, our collective capacity is so low because we're so tired from trying to pay our bills and whatever trauma that we're dealing with and, you know, whatever fires we're trying to put out in our life, a lot of us don't have the luxury and privilege of examining these issues. And so that's mm -hmm. why I've tried to lay them out really clearly and succinctly in the book so that we can own them and then atone, make amends and move on. The same is true with misogyny. Um, if you heard the way gay men talked about women when you're not in the room, you would cringe, or at least I do. It is absolutely unacceptable. And of course, I'm generalizing here on purpose because, you know, we have limited time. But it's, you know, um, it's, of course, not true of every gay man. But um, I'm, I'm trying to make a provocative point to get us to take a look at our own lives and where might our own inadvertent misogyny might lie. How are we objectifying women? Maybe not as sexual objects, but as life accessories. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that comes from fear? Yes, I think that um, we are afraid of our own femininity as gay men, that I, I believe there is no homophobia without misogyny. I think mm -hmm. they are inextricably entwined. 
Interesting. And, and I think that's different than racism. I think misogyny comes from a different space of fear, a different locus of fear than racism in gay men. It's no less insidious or repugnant. But I think the way it operates in our lives is differently. And those pieces that we have to, those parts of us we have to transcend are slightly different than the racist parts. But mm-hmm. I think we are so afraid of being feminized in front of a straight man that we lash out and at anything that we experience as feminine. And that can be something like bottom shaming in the gay community. Mm-hmm. So if if you're on a, uh, a gay dating app, you might see something like no femmes or mm-hmm. you, might, you might see something um, denigrating people who like certain activities in the bedroom and um, or it can it can be expressed as. Um, uh, those sort of uh, microaggressions against female bodies um, where we say, you know, where we might slut shame a woman or we might fat shame a woman. We might comment at all on their bodies. But, you know, rarely in our society do you increase someone's social standing by commenting on their femininity. <laughs> interesting. So we had very better, interesting. Yeah. So we have to choose our words so carefully. And I, that's where in the book I try to start with is start watching your words and look at the face of your female friends when you speak to them. Really look at their pain and listen to their stories. Yeah. And I think it's also everything that you're saying also feeds into this idea that I that I know, but is also a really good reminder. This is, serves as a good reminder, which is that if you're marginalized in one aspect of your life and you're aware of that and you're fighting against that and trying to raise your own awareness and people's awareness, that is not sort of an inoculation against the other areas in which you might be biased or prejudiced or in, in which you might be marginalizing other people. That was so well said. I love that. You are so right. And, you know, there was a brilliant black woman. um, Well, she's still around, um, Kimberly Chapman, who theorized about intersectionality, how we as marginalized communities, it's in our, aside from the the moral issues, it's in our own best strategic interest to lift each other's, to lift each other up. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are black gay men, there are, you know, straight trans women, um, we, we, you know, nature does not, um, nature is delightfully diverse. It really does not care about our little categories or social structures. <laughs> you know, do you call somebody bisexual if they've had sex one time in their life with someone of the same gender? What do mm-hmm. you know? What, there, <laughs> when you stop and really think about the edges where we draw these lines, it all starts to seem culturally constituted. Like we're just kind of winging it and making it up as we go along. But the consequences are so very real. And these lines that we draw, the impacts are so profound, especially in the unintended consequences that I really think that, you know, we're moving beyond labels can be really affirming and empowering, especially when we are first um, when we're first. Um, claiming our identities. But after a while, I think there's diminishing returns. And um, I think we as a people, years hence, will look back and think, gosh, a lot of those labels just did not even make sense to have. We are all people having this experience, um, no matter who we love. Hmm. I really hope that's true. I really hope that, I mean, I, I, I love everything that you're saying and I feel like it, it's amazing to me. I didn't realize how much your book covered 
I had a sense of what your book covered, but I didn't understand that you touch on so much of this. And I didn't know a lot about this connection between misogyny and gay culture and just sort of that legacy yeah. there. Yeah. You you would be amazed to hear some of the, the way gay men, uh, you know, describe people from other races or genders on the one hand, lifting them up while on the, the very next second, beating them down. So one common trope among gay men is that they will sort of ascribe um, black female personalities to themselves, but they will be the first to, to put to shame a woman based on her weight or her fashion choices. They'll be the first to, um, you know, complain. This is something that's happening right now. So it's top of mind for me complain about um, the, the black lives matter messaging encroaching on gay pride month. And ah. so these contradictions are in place because a lot of us don't have the capacity for the self-reflection and the, and the fortitude for the fearless moral inventory required to really mm. assess our actions and to go clean up after our messes and understand the implication of our choices and our language. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a message for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that your book is sort of good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a good read for everybody. Absolutely. I do too. I, w- I did want to create a space that was specifically for gay men. So you will notice if you read this book, a cultural um, point of view that's very strong. It's a very strong gay male cultural point of view. But the the practical insights, wisdom, and advice is applicable to any life, any person. And, you know, do you think that this was the time to have the book out? I mean, if you'd written it 10 years ago or five years ago, do you think, do you think it would have been different? I do. Um, I do think it would have been different. So my principal inspiration in, in my own spiritual journey has been the black civil rights movement. And I have learned more from African-American writers than anyone else, some of whom were gay, like James Baldwin. And, you know, I've learned a lot in the last few years, like a lot of the rest of us. I mean, as much as I thought I knew, I, I still was pretty clueless in some areas. And so like you're saying, I think there's some synchronicity here. And that all we've learned, I started writing this book in April last year, and all that we've learned in the last five years I poured in my heart and soul into this book, and it was definitely informed by current events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like every time I turn around, I'm learning something yeah. new, and that I'm I need to I need to continue to learn something new. And it's it's interesting when I talk to people who I don't want to generalize too much in, in an older generation, where they seem flummoxed by all the the new terms and all the issues they need to be aware of. But that's just the way it is. I mean, yeah. that's that's our life. Right. Yeah, it's not static. Yeah, yeah. And we do need to be aware of what's happening and, and try to figure out what we can do. So and it's, it's yeah. hard work, but it's also hard living with the bigotry. Of course. I mean, it's it's like it sounds so cliched, but who said it was supposed to be easy? Who? I, yes, mean, exactly. I mean, we, I don't know. I don't I guess maybe in some alternate universe, people <laughs> expected life to be vanilla all the time. But it's not. <laughs> You know, um, you know. I think more than anything, if and look, this is something I'm working on too. I wish, for, if I had one wish for all of us, it would it would be to learn to revel in our messiness. 
Mm-hmm. You know, to to we are a funky people. <laughs> You know, and it's like, we want to clean stuff up. We want to gentrify our conversations in the way we've gentrified our neighborhoods. And that's a damn shame. We Mm -hmm. should learn to, we're not meant to, none of us are meant to just fit into the crowd. We're all meant to stand tall and be unique and seen in all of our glory. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where the empowering, the -hmm. empowering messages, you know, a hard, honest look at where we are in your Mm -hmm. book, a hard, honest look about where we need to go. And then standing up tall also with pride for who we are. Right. So. Absolutely. And it's not even, it's everything you described. And it's also the practical advice and wisdom to get you there. So Mm -hmm. I lay things out. I, I actually, like when it comes to finances and career planning, um, I have an MBA and 20 years of corporate experience, and I draw on that to give you, to tell you how to go on a job interview, to how to prepare to source potential companies, to how to look for volunteer opportunities or side hustles. When it comes to financial planning, how to get in the stock market, how to get into the real estate market. So I give you lots of specific wisdom and insight. So it's a how-to manual for life, and it's sort of wrapped in this inspirational memoir. Wow. Where can people get this book? The best way to find me is on my website, which is really the hub for all of my social media channels. And then it has the link where you can buy the book. Um, so my, my website is BritEast.com and um, everything's right there. Now, the book will be available on all the major e-tailers like um, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and you know, books a million and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be available on all of those retailer sites. And we're also working on getting it into bookstores as well. But my website is really your first stop shopping. And then that will take you off in whatever direction you want to go. And then it also has lots of great free content as well. I have a blog, I have written free articles that are hosted on medium.com. So it's, if you go to my website, you'll see all sorts of free and paid um, content for you. Wonderful. I'm really excited to see what the response is. I I hope that people read this book. I hope they get the word out. Oh my gosh, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, Britt, it's been so good to talk with you. And I learned, I I learned, I knew I was going to learn, but I learned a lot more than I even thought I was going to learn. So thank you so much for being my guest. It was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.